I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi there, and welcome back to the show. My family has just made it home from our first in-person CT and MB1 conference, and we're landing smack dab in the first days of summer break. I'm a little scared. Are you? How are you set up for the coming months? I'd love to hear about how you've prepared or perhaps how those wishes didn't come to pass. I'm super happy to say that because of an episode about summer camps, Ford actually made it into one. It's a five day and night overstay summer camp in August. I'm not even kidding you. We've also been invited to a baseball game from Rob Long at Uplifting Athletes. Thank you, Rob. You're the most amazing human ever. We cannot wait to see you at the Mariners Twins game. Again, the magic that happens from telling your story. I'll keep you updated on the success of both. In keeping a little bit on theme of last week's episode uh, from Spanish mom Carolina Moreno, whose daughter received a cure from a gene therapy, I have a brilliant scientist for you today. She grew up in Mexico, where she did her undergraduate studies in genomic sciences and received her PhD in molecular and human genetics from Baylor College of Medicine, where she's contributed to so many large population genomic studies. She has since moved back to Mexico and started her own lab, and you're going to hear about all that she's doing today in our conversation. Please enjoy my conversation with Claudia Gonzaga Kauragi. Hello, Claudia. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Effie. It's so awesome to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh my gosh, yes. I love following you on Twitter. Like, love, love. Same here. I love your Twitter feed as well. <laughs> and you're just doing such important work and you're such a you're such an amazing advocate in so many ways. And I love that you're not afraid to talk about controversial topics that maybe some people in your field might be might feel like taboo. I just I really respect all of the information that you share and especially your work. So I'm really excited for everyone to get to meet you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Claudia, there's quite a list of accomplishments, but let's go back to the beginning. I'd love to hear about how you got started. Uh, sure. So I'm originally from Mexico. I was born and grew up in Mexico. I did my undergraduate studies in genomic sciences at UNAM, which is the National Autonomous University of Mexico, and one of the biggest in Latin America. And then after I finished my undergrad, I was very sure that I wanted to do human genetics. At that time, I mean, it was the beginning of genomics, uh, but there was not a lot of genomics, human genomics going on in Mexico. So I went abroad and I went to Baylor College of Medicine 
uh, to do my PhD in molecular and human genetics there. Then I did a postdoc doing some functional modeling in zebrafish of variants found in patients with uh, rare diseases. And then I went to industry in a little bit of a career change to Regeneron in New York uh, to work at the Regeneron Genetic Center, which had just been created in 2014 to do large-scale analysis of patients and families with uh, genetic conditions to try to identify disease-causing variation and also potential drug targets for drug development. Yeah, so you've been all over the place. <laughs> yeah, and then in 2021, I came back to Mexico uh, so now I'm back here at UNAM again, now starting my research lab, working on rare diseases and uh, trying to increase the access to genomic sequencing for patients living with rare diseases in Mexico and Latin America, because unfortunately there's a high cost and low access uh, for these technologies that in some other countries are sort of first-tier diagnostic uh, uh, tools nowadays, but here is not the case. So we're trying to do a little bit of that on the on the research side. Yeah, we're definitely going to dig into that to that part. Um, I do want to kind of dig in a little bit about your career path because I know that you were doing all of this awesome stuff at Baylor and then got your job in industry. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your position in industry and why the change was so profound? I know that you. You mentioned something on Twitter a couple weeks ago about the fact that you, quote unquote, missed a step according to academia and you weren't able to move forward in a way that you would have been extremely valuable in because of, I don't know, academia bureaucracy. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, well, yeah, I, I kind of never really thought of going into industry. So when I was finishing my postdoc, I didn't have a great experience as a postdoc. There was a bit of recently, right, the bullying article on Twitter. Uh, there was quite a bit of bullying in the lab I did my postdoc at. So I was a bit disappointed with academia and sort of uh, it, it also hit a lot of, of my self-esteem and how much I would be able to become a, an independent investigator in that. So then this opportunity in industry came up and I, again, really had never considered industry, but it was like, well, at this point of my career, I could quit science altogether and um, go back to Mexico and maybe teach or do something else or I can try this job in industry. So I decided to give it a shot. And then I went to industry. I was there for seven years and I worked a lot. I did a lot, but ultimately also um, there's quite a bit of sexism in, in, in industry. Uh, most of the leadership in big pharma are uh, white males. Uh, so when I sort of, in some ways I outgrew the role I started in after seven years. So I wanted to uh, move on with my career within the company and that, and there was no option to do that. So that combined with desire, I had to really do something in Mexico and in Latin America. I knew, I mean, I was doing all these 
analysis of patients with rare diseases in industry every day. And I knew that this was not something that was readily available in Mexico and that were some, there were so many patients that could benefit from these technologies and they just didn't have access. So I had a, also a little bit of guilt in that sense that I was doing something over there that I could be doing in Mexico and I wasn't. So again, a lot of, of factors combined. And so then I, I decided it was time to look for some independence. And then when I was looking into going back into academia in the U.S., um, as you say, um, I kind of found a little bit of, of difficulty because most of the search committees for um, universities, they were like, well, you have to come in with some grant money, like you've been seven years in industry, you don't have any grants, any R01s or transition career grants. So yeah, we kind of really don't trust you to bring in money to the university. So they proposed that I went back as a postdoc and work for three years and then sort of apply for a, an NIH grant and that. And that was like, well, I, I didn't spend seven years in industry leading a group doing large scale genomics to go back to being a postdoc. So I decided to expand my options and then talking to people in Mexico, they were very encouraging. They were like, we really want you to come back. We need people with your expertise, with your knowledge, so please come back. And yeah, that's, that was sort of how the decision was made, uh, sort of combine, a combination of a welcoming, more welcoming environment and also the opportunity to come back to my home country and, and try to make a difference. Thanks for sharing that, Claudia. It's It's so frustrating. And I feel like you're such a powerful voice for diversity, equity, and inclusion in so many areas so far of your career, right? Like it's not just the Hispanic and Latino expertise that you bring, but like this has been a part of your path as a female scientist in academia and in industry. And it it kind of, it just connects a lot of things that are in such desperate need of change. So yeah, I'm really sorry that that happened it's such a loss, but such a gain for your community. Can we talk about the Human Genome Project that you've seen from the beginning that you've been a part of and kind of what sort of changes you've been excited about over the last 20 some odd years and kind of what you're bringing now with your position in Mexico? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I remember and I recently was looking over some old stuff that my mom brought back and she's like, you have all this stuff in my house, like you should get rid of it. And some of it was like old uh, projects from high school. And there was this report that I did back in high school on the human genome project. So I remember it was very exciting for me to to read all this news about the human genome project and what was being done and this international collaboration and then a little bit of the drama right between the private and the public initiatives and the race for the human genome and that so i remember i mean i remember from middle school being very excited and interested in genetics but then really uh, during high school when i was experiencing reading these uh, all these news and all this hype about the human genome project i think that that was also a very big contributor to my decision to pursue human genetics and genomics 
And then, I mean, I've been very lucky to be in some ways part, part of this history, as you say, over the last 20 years. I mean, Baylor is, um, was one of the, of the sequencing centers that participated in the human genome project. And, uh, I've been very lucky and happy to work with the human genome sequencing center as a student while at Baylor. And now as a, as a researcher, as an independent researcher doing collaborative projects with, with the Human Genome Sequencing Center. And then, I mean, just having that exposure to all those different technologies that came up between 2007 and 2010, and then ultimately being part of, of the project and, and doing the analysis for the first human genome that was actually used for finding the cause of a genetic disease. That was such a, a, a huge experience and, and gift, scientific gift to me. The first genome that was uh, sequenced, because uh, at that time we didn't know. So the Human Genome Project has been finished and there was all this hype, but uh, it was still pretty expensive to sequence. And most of the people that were being sequenced were like these famous older dudes like Jim Watson and Craig Venter and Desmond Tutu and all of these famous people, right? And there was this question of uh, genomic sequencing just going to be a, a commodity, right? Is this just going to be for the rich and famous or will it actually have some, some use and application? So uh, I had just started at Baylor as a student and then uh, we had this uh, the Human Genome Sequencing Center, along with my uh, PhD advisor, they had the secret project to do the first genome to see if we could actually find the variants that were causing a genetic disease. And my PhD advisor, Jim Lovsky, he has a genetic condition. He has Charcot-Marie 2 disease. He has three other siblings that uh, are affected by the disease. And so it, it was very clear that it was genetic, but until then they hadn't found the, the gene for that. So then they decided to have this secret project um, to sequence him, right? As a geneticist, he knew the risk, he understood what it entailed. So he was the perfect subject to, to do that project and see if we could actually find it. And then I remember he called me to his office and he said like, oh, you know, you, you know how to do that computer stuff. So, cause you did this genomics. So like, do you want to analyze my data? So you can imagine as a first year graduate student, like in that time, like being given, right? All the data for a whole genome to analyze that was so exciting to me. So I started the analysis. I put together an annotation pipeline that I still use today. And I started analyzing them and we found the first mutation at 7X. So I said, like, I think this is the gene, but like we need more coverage to find the second mutation. So we eventually ended up sequencing his genome at 29.5X and we found the two variants and then that was sort of the first proof of concept that you could actually use whole genome sequencing to find the cause of a genetic disease. So, so that was very exciting. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, it sort of opened up all these feel, right, of, of uh, medical genomics and clinical genomics. 
So I was there in the conversations about launching the first exome sequencing um, test clinically, uh, which came out from Baylor uh, in uh, the end of 2011. And then the Centers for Mendelian Genomics and all the uh, studies we did on, on Mendelian diseases and these really the, the revolution that genomics has been for studying rare diseases, especially for um, sporadic conditions, right? Caused by new mutations that are not in either of the parents. And then they happened early on in, in uh, embryogenesis or in the germ cells of the parents. And then you have these conditions that until then were not really uh, studied because like you didn't have these huge pedigrees that we are so used to see in genetics. So application of this trio exome sequencing approach uh, became really powerful to study all of these diseases and ultimately provide diagnosis to a lot of these patients that had been undiagnosed for many years. Okay, you see why I wanted to talk to Claudia, everyone? She's an OG. And <laughs> she's incredible. Just like putting a comment on a few things that you mentioned. I'm just thinking about who's going to play you in this movie. But that guy saying, do you want to analyze my data? I can imagine like what a pickup line that is for a scientist. <laughs> and I think you need that on a t-shirt. Um <laughs> Like, that is amazing. But I was wondering if you'd maybe go back to what you, was it your notation pipeline that you mentioned that you created? Is that what you said it was called, notation pipeline? Yeah, annotation. So annotation is this process where once we sequence and we have the variants, so we basically look up all the databases available and gather all that information for each of these variants to try to interpret and see like, is, is it predicted to be pathogenic? Is it rare? Is it, what's the frequency in population databases and all of that? So this, this process is called annotation. Okay, but you, you created like your own? Yeah, yeah, because at that time there wasn't, I mean, we didn't have all these tools and programs and companies that have software for analyzing genome and exome data. So at that time it was like, okay, what's what's available and what can I do to try to find some meaning in all this variation that was coming out from, from the sequencing center. That's so cool. And you're still using the same one that you kind of created. Is anyone else using your notation pipeline? No, so I, I've sort of taken it with me over time. So I was using it when I was at Duke and then that was the pipeline that I used all the time that was that when I was at Regeneron. I don't know if they've changed now since I've left, but that was the, the pipeline that we used then for all the analysis of, of Mendelian and rare diseases at Regeneron. And now I carrying it with me because uh, it's it's proven to be useful. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay, I definitely want to go into the the amazing contribution that you're offering to the entire world, but specifically to the Hispanic and Latin American population by going by returning back to Mexico and applying all of this and working to get access for these underrepresented groups. But can you talk a little bit about the challenges by not having this diversity, these underrepresented populations in the genomic databases and maybe the setbacks that it's created and how much work we have to do moving forward to get these people participating in it? 
Yeah, so I mean, from the from the analysis standpoint, um, I mean, um, we know it's more challenging to analyze the data of uh, individuals, patients from underrepresented populations. Uh, we have m many more variants that are, as as you know, in 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 this area, right? These variants of unknown significance that everyone dreads to have as a result because. Precisely, since we don't have population frequency data, so it's really hard to interpret. Is this really a rare variant that could be pathogenic, or is this a low frequency variant in this population, or even a more frequent variant, but we just haven't sampled enough people? So it does represent a challenge. And again, uh, ultimately, a lot of these uh, current databases that we have are derived from these large genome-wide association studies that have been run since 2005 uh, and then sort of with the sequencing of these large cohorts. But unfortunately, most of them are of European ancestry individuals. So that really drowns a bit of the uh, information that we have for other underrepresented populations. So the other part is that the access to, to these technologies. I mean, I keep telling people here that we are about 10 years back from what other countries are at in terms of genomics. So the situation right now in, in Mexico and in most of Latin America, it reminds me a lot of how we started 13 years ago when we started doing genomic, uh, the Centers for Manila Genomics and Genomic Sequencing for studying rare diseases in the U.S., where, I mean, a lot of the, of the physicians, of the specialists, they are, they don't believe like, oh, this is going to, to help me figure out what to do with my patient. Now there's way more uptake uh, of that in the U.S., in the U.K., in Europe. But at the beginning, we we also had that little bit of resistance of of many of the specialists sort of thinking like, oh, what is this genome thing going to tell me that I cannot uh, figure out with an MRI or other tests, right? So that's something that we are facing right now. And part of it is also that there's not a lot of, knowledge of what these technologies can do, how they can help, how they can help guide management and treatment for the patients. Uh, part of it is because uh, they are hard to access here. Uh, it costs us about three times more to sequence in Mexico or within Latin America than it costs to sequence in the U.S. So what many people do is that they send out samples for those families that can actually pay out of pocket, because obviously this is not covered by the public healthcare system. Few people in Mexico would have insurance. So for the few people that can actually pay it out of pocket, so these tests, your regular exome is sent out to Invite or Centogene or GeneDx, in, in the US or in Europe, they get sequenced there, they get the report, but then also all of that data stays in their private databases, right? So we, we don't have that data coming back informing population frequencies in our populations. So that's also a problem. And, and the thing that we're trying to address 
trying to establish collaborations and mechanisms so that we can start sequencing within the region and in the country, at least in Mexico, uh, locally, uh, so that, and sustainably long-term, because if we really want to apply these for diagnostics long-term for any patient that has a suspected genetic disease, we have to do it in the country. Uh, we cannot be sending everything out. It's not sustainable. So we're trying to do that and work through different, on the policy side, on the trying to, to persuade government to maybe give some tax breaks for import taxes, because one of the major issues with the cost is that everything is imported. So that increases the cost for all reagents, for the uh, instruments to do sequencing. So that, and, and then if we manage to, to lower the cost to sequence locally, then, uh, we think increasing education and, and informing physicians of the usefulness of these tests, then we can have some progress in, in having more people diagnosed in Mexico and in Latin America more broadly. It's so complicated, right? Like you, you don't really, imagine the scope of how difficult it is to get access like this in underserved populations. You think that it's just maybe education and and informing people that this isn't science fiction, whether it's the families or the medical professionals, but it's so much bigger than that with governments and regulatory stuff. And it's almost like there has to be a there has to be an operation for each and every one to eventually make it move. It's hard. So I have a question about culture. Is there a different approach that you have to take with your Hispanic and Latin American families to explain genetic testing and diseases? Is there any sort of stigma around getting tests like that or having a diagnosis? Uh, we haven't found any any resistance. Uh, I mean, I think in that sense, as you know, families that have patients uh, living with rare diseases are are usually very open to to contributing to like increasing knowledge and and participating not only for for their kid but also or their patient but also for for other patients that may come afterwards so we haven't encountered really any cultural uh, barriers in terms of that i mean definitely we we need and we're trying to do some outreach in terms of education and awareness and information on rare diseases because I think as a population we need to have better genetics education and that's not only in in Mexico I think broadly we need better genetics education as genomics becomes much more prevalent for health uh, in general regardless of whether you have a rare disease or or a more common disease, there will be a genetic component that you need to understand and be aware. And um, I think in general, we, we're lacking that sort of uh, understanding of risk and susceptibility and interaction between genetic factors and other environmental factors as, as global population. But culturally, I mean, most people are very open. We do want and plan to uh, engage uh, more uh, remote and underserved communities, especially we were interested in reaching out to indigenous communities because we know some of them are like these little founder populations because they are so remote. They tend to have 
sometimes higher burden of, of uh, some diseases because there's not a lot of gene flow in those communities and that. And I don't know if that will change when we go into more indigenous communities. But in general, I mean, the, the, the participants that we had so far, they are very willing to contribute, to be part of research, to, uh, I mean, we even asked recently a family where we have a diagnosis if, if we could publish the, the case and, and if they were okay with, um, having the picture of their child included in the manuscript. And they said, yeah, that's fine. And we said, we, don't worry, we can cover the eyes. And they said, like, no, don't cover the eyes because that's a major feature of, of this disorder. And that's how we, we recognize the condition in the other images of patients that we, you showed us with this disorder. So this is important for people to recognize it. So we've, we've been so far very lucky in that people are very participative. Wow. Yeah, it's a true rare disease family fashion right there, for sure. I feel like even just in the couple years I've been exposed to the rare disease community, it almost felt like a little bit of lip service to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in genetics and genomics. And then I saw some real conversations happen. And then I saw even more of like the Hispanic and Latin American population kind of coming front and center, whereas I didn't necessarily see it before. I know like Luisa Leal with the Akari Foundation and Vicky Artiaga with she and Syngap Research Fund are really pushing to have, you know, this population included in so many things and translating across borders also. So I'm really happy about that. Do you feel like the Hispanic and Latina population has been dismissed even more so than any other population? Or is it kind of the same across the board for underrepresented populations? Yeah, I think it's it's overall the same across underrepresented populations. The only thing that I would say is that, I mean, obviously Africa, the continent as a whole and African populations, they do need a lot of support in that. But I think there's Definitely been, at least in genomics, a much more uh, prevalent focus on facilitating genomics and genetics in, in Africa. And I mean, we had this H3 Africa project, which I love and I think it was great. But I keep telling people like we need an H3 Latin America because we need that same kind of, of, of push and support to to really elevate the the genomics in in Latin America and the again facilitate and increase access to genomic technologies for patients from my perspective I I just keep telling people we have the technologies to to do these uh, molecular diagnosis and I think that it, in some ways it's immoral as humanity to not give these access to people no matter where they are the, if you have a genetic disorder and we have the technology to be able to diagnose this, people should get access. And I think just not having that access because you were born in, in Mexico or in Indonesia or in Ghana or in certain parts of the country, it's, I don't know, it, it should make us as human beings very ashamed. Because, I mean, there, there are so many changes in, in patient management, in, in the lives of the families, 
in the counseling that you can give in potential treatments now that we see all of these new therapies with oligonucleotides and gene therapies and uh, now genome editing that we're starting to see. Like, I think there is a lot of opportunity to, to help many of these patients. And it starts with knowing exactly what's, what's the genetic defect. And I think we, we just need to, as scientific, as a community, as a humanity, just strive to, to be able to provide that access no matter where people are. Amen. It is an absolute responsibility. Yeah. Can you talk about the Mexican registry for rare diseases that you helped create? For many years, the Mexican government had said that they were going to start this registry because this has been something that the uh, rare disease community in Mexico had asked for for a long time. And it turns out that, uh, I mean, it came up and then they dropped it and then came up again and dropped it. So eventually in uh, 2021, in the middle of the pandemic in August, they actually launched the census for rare diseases. And the rare disease community was very happy and people started registering and that. And then in October of the same year, a few months later, they shut it down because they said that like people were just trying to make them look bad in the middle of the pandemic and like saying that there were more people sick than there were actually in the country. So it, it was just uh, political nonsense. But ultimately it resulted in that that effort of the census, the national census was shut down. And I remember tweeting about this and saying, like, well, this is unfortunate because this is obviously uh, something that is very needed in, in Mexico to really know how many patients are there with rare diseases. Uh, so the Mexican Health Ministry only recognizes 20 rare diseases in Mexico. So obviously, if you don't have any of those 20 rare diseases, which most patients want, like it's harder to get access to medications, to uh, services, to any kind of support and, and medical services. So, so I said, well, it's really unfortunate that they shut it down. And then I remember one of my colleagues, uh, she texted me and she said like, oh, I saw the news about the registry. So why don't you just do it? I mean, obviously it's a lot of work and it's, and I was very concerned about the politics of it. But ultimately, I do believe that's something that was really needed. It's really needed. So we drafted, I, I wrote the, the protocol. So it is a, an approved research protocol. Uh, we put it through the IRB and then we sort of uh, started uh, drafting some image for, to make it attractive, to make it friendly to people. And then we finally launched it Rare Disease Day of 2022. And we've been running it for a little bit more than a year. It's uh, It's been somewhat slow, but uh, we're starting to see a lot of the things that you know very well. The diagnostic odyssey of patients, uh, patients visiting eight to 10 physicians, specialists to get just a clinical diagnosis. Very few patients in Mexico having a molecular diagnosis. Just about 20% have uh, some have had some molecular testing. Many patients, even though someone, one of the specialists has said like, oh, you might have a genetic condition, they don't get referred to geneticists. So 
they are just left like, oh, you might have a genetic condition. There's nothing that we can do. And so things like that, that again, for the rare disease community, it's like everyday experiences, but that they, they are rarely documented. And especially in Mexico and, and Latin America, they are not uh, documented. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do with the registry. So sh show uh, like how many patients, what many other diseases beyond these 20 that are recognized are in the population, but also highlight some of the challenges and, uh, and that it can serve to patient organizations in the country and in the region to show to uh, health authorities and government authorities that this is a need. There are these challenges. We need to address this. Claudia, thank you for being born. <laughs> the United States is so stupid that they lost you, but you're exactly where you're supposed to be and doing so much more important work than I can even imagine, really. And I bet it means so much to you. Like, I know you said that you had guilt that you were doing this work and not necessarily contributing to, like, you know, your homeland. And I hope that it's even, like, that much more fulfilling to you that you're there and that you're this beacon of brilliance to to everyone because they deserve you so much. Thank you. I'm really happy where I am. I mean, it's a, it's a great, healthy environment of, like, working and collaboration and that. But also I'm really happy I because I do think that I couldn't have done half of what I've done in the last uh, couple of years with the registry, with the advocacy, with engaging and, and even providing some initial diagnosis to patients here in Mexico if I, if I had stayed uh, in the U.S. or in industry. So in some cases, in many cases, Maybe you do need to maybe push some of this work from the inside to make it happen. So, yeah, that's that's where we are. <laughs> yep. Yep. So who or where are some of the key players right now that need to make a move or what can they open up that's really going to help you do your work for the Latino and Hispanic community? Well, in terms of, of uh, access, which is kind of my my main uh, flag that I keep flagging around, uh, in terms of access to diagnosis, one one of the things that we've uh, tried to engage and talk and 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 see how we can collaborate is uh, the big sequencing companies, right? Like uh, we've engaged with Illumina, we're starting to do some mostly education. So we're having a, a symposium for the Undiagnosed Disease Day, um, April 28th in Spanish to talk about exome sequencing and what you can do with Illumina, but also some of the other sequencing companies to see how we can work together to address these issues of, of access and cost. I obviously understand they are companies and they leave, right, uh, and thrive from selling products and instruments and that. But I think there's also some social responsibility in terms of, again, if there's this technology available, how how to facilitate the access in places that are, that it's more difficult to get that done. So so we've engaged with, with companies, with sequencing companies to try to see what we can do together to so I have this grant plan to 
or, or dream to have uh, reference genomic reference centers for rare diseases in Latin America in three different countries across the region so that they can serve to gather samples and sequence large scale for patients all over the continent. I think it's unrealistic to really think that every country will have technology to do this, but I think as a region, we can do much more and much better. So that's that's kind of my my secret plan to to try to convince some of these companies and the stakeholders to to support some a pilot on these um, reference centers for genomic diagnostics in Latin America. And then part of this is that I think we need proof of concept that this is helpful and this is useful in our own populations. Because unfortunately, governments in Latin America, they, they lack a lot of long-term vision. And as you know, the cost, the benefit of having an early diagnosis, you won't see it necessarily in a couple of years or four years of a, of a government term, but you will see it long-term in the cost in healthcare services, but also in the long-term survival and better quality of life of a lot of patients. So uh, I think, again, as you said before, right? Like sometimes these technologies are seen as space science and things that are sort of too far away from these countries. But I think we need to show that we can do this here, that we can do it in a way that's effective for our population. And my hope is that if we have some funding for for a pilot of these uh, genomic diagnostics reference centers, then the governments will see the benefit and sort of take it long term and sustainably for regular diagnosis of patients with genetic diseases in the region. Uh, but we do need a way to to get that started. So in some ways we're trying to do that with with the research program that we launched last year, but it's it's very small scale at this point because we don't have unlimited funding for sequencing, but we're we're hoping that partnering with uh, industry partners and other stakeholders including uh, pharma that may be interested in in having this type of early diagnostic programs in Latin America can help us uh, put that proof of concept uh, data for governments to really get interested in, in adopting genomic technologies for early diagnosis. I'm just going to I'm just going to make all of that a big audiogram and share it widely, Claudia. <laughs> I have no doubt that you will accomplish this secret master plan and I am so so passionate about helping you spread that and help you to <laughs> get in any door that you possibly can because this is so important for everyone. Thank you. One more thing before I let you go is your book. Can you tell me a little bit about the book that you were involved with? Yeah, so 2021, we published these um, genomics of rare diseases, understanding disease genetics through genomic approaches. And as such a huge amount of work, but such a pleasure to to do it. Um, so uh, I was contacted back in 2000, at the end of 2018, I think, by an editor from Elsevier uh, asking like, well, we know you work on rare diseases. Do you think there's a need for a textbook on this subject? And uh, would you be interested in participating in it? And I just jumped at it. 
one of, of my major flaws is that like I cannot say no, especially if I think these are really important things. So I just jumped on it and I said like, yes, there is definitely a need for a book that sort of includes all of the different advances in the last 10 years on genomics and how it has impacted rare diseases and uh, what's the future and what are still the challenges in that. So, so he said like, oh, can you propose a, an outline? So I did that and then sort of that process started and we started working on the project. We hit the pandemic, so that made it harder because obviously everyone was trying to handle like work from home and and kids at home and all sorts of responsibilities. So we had a bit of a delay there. Uh, one of the main focus, at least for me, when, when I was writing and when we were editing the, the book, was that I wanted it to be a resource, not just for clinicians or students in biomedical sciences that were interested in rare diseases, but also for families that if you, if you just got a diagnosis of a rare disease for, for your, for your kid, uh, and you want to learn more about what all of these genomics means, like how did they even find these diagnoses doing, uh, genomic sequencing? that it could be accessible to to parents, to public that may not be experts in genetics, but that are interested in learning more about the technologies. So I hope, and I would love feedback from, from people, uh, from parents and, and the rare disease community that might have read or, or looked at the book, if if this is accessible, um, I think at some point we we are definitely interested in a new edition, uh, uh, maybe in a year or so. So any feedback is really welcome. But we I, we I really wanted it to be accessible to people that were not experts. So the first chapter really tries to set up the the baseline of uh, concepts that you might need to understand some of the other concepts in the book. And sort of setting up with examples and a bit of historical perspective of how the field advanced and how uh, these technologies came to be and and um, have helped study and diagnose rare diseases. So I hope we we accomplish a little bit of that. Claudia, wanting to make something accessible, <laughs> so off-brand. No, that is amazing. I actually got to get myself a copy. It's called Genomics of Rare Diseases, Understanding Disease Genetics Using Genomic Approaches. I'll link it in the, in the podcast notes so you can all get yourself a copy and then definitely follow up with Claudia and please give her your feedback. This is such important work and I'm just so honored to have you in the rare disease world. You make it better. Thank you for all of the work you're doing. By the way, she just said it for a second, but during COVID and career changes and country moves and Mexican registries and creating access for Latin America and all of this other stuff that she's talked about, she also became a mother. So yeah, congratulations <laughs> for everything that you've done and your contribution to humanity. Claudia, I am in awe of you and I hope to see your face and your voice on every platform that is speaking on rare disease. Um, so thank you so much for being my guest. And please tell everyone where they can find you. And if there's anything that I didn't ask or mention that you want to leave them with, 
please do so. Yeah, thank you so much, Effie, for for inviting me. I'm, I'm a big fan of you, of your podcast, and of the whole rare disease community. I have so much respect for all the families, uh, all the patients. And again, I think it's our responsibility to do our best as scientists, as humans, to to make the lives of, of patients and families with rare diseases better every day. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> I tweet about genetics a lot and other issues, <laughs> as you said. And then, um, yeah, for people in, in Latin America and uh, Latino, Hispanic population in the U.S. with rare diseases, they want to find out more. It, even just content in Spanish, we're trying to really focus on making content in Spanish about rare diseases. So we have the website, enfermedadesraras.lig.unam.mx, L-I-I-G-H. Uh, that stands for Laboratorio Internacional de Investigación sobre el Genoma Humano. And um, yeah, I am, um, again, thank you so much for having me. Oh, you put a big smile on my face. Okay, thank you so much, Claudia. I can't wait to share our conversation. Thank you. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. 